I think that reading is longer than my sermon. But, you know, every year, it, it's so great to just read these stories, isn't it? Every year, I'm, I'm almost 51, and still, they're, they're always new, they're always beautiful, they're always just great. This one doesn't put it Yes, I'm too short. So, I'm being told that when it's really sunny out, this is a really bad place for me to stand. How is it today, Ron? Is this better? Fine today. fine today because it's not so bright. I've just been told maybe that it's like you can't even see me and it's hard to look. So if that's the case, just if someone just go like this, I can't see and I slide over. Also, I need to apologize. I don't know what's going on, but the, the screen was really dark today. Yeah. Rich, I don't, is it maybe this connection again? That's, it was doing that funny color thing yeah. over here. So I think we have a connection. So sorry, it's been hard to read, but anyway, we'll get through it together. So one of the greatest challenges of the Christmas season is the contrast between the light and the dark. Between the glow of decorations on our trees and sometimes the shadows that fill up our souls. Between the celebration of the joy of the season and the very real sorrow that many people live with. Between the happy faces and the happy cookies and the happy songs and yet the very real pain and suffering that many of us experience through a given year. Between the glad tidings of peace on earth and the very real chaos and confusion and sadly evil that we confront daily in our world. Between the hope of Christmas and the profound hopelessness that many people live with. Our own lives are not as always as shining and bright as we like to portray them, are they, when we're honest with ourselves. For every vision of sugar plums dancing in our heads, there are the realities of illness and disease. Just behind every dream of silent night, there are the nightmares of shattered expectations. And veiled behind every wish for truth, there are broken relationships and crippled families and the casualties caused by untruth. And this year alone in our little community, it has been exceptionally difficult for many of us. Dale's mom passed away this year. Meg's mom passed away this year. Ginny lost family members this year. Many of us lost dear friends. It's been quite a 12 months. And certainly in the world around us has been so much loss. You know what? After my morning study and prayer time, my routine is to then check. I have three or four new sites that I like to check. And uh, lately I just hesitate. I just hesitate to, to, to open up the Washington Post, not a, afraid of what I'm going to see in the headlines. And for some among us here, or some dear to us, there's little to celebrate this year as we get to this time when everyone's celebrating. Some of us have lost our jobs, or maybe we just struggle perennially to get by financially. Some of us are true victims of others' inhumanity, or, or maybe we just always have a sense of hurt, a sense of, of lostness. Or maybe we're in the midst of an especially long season of despair and lack of faith because of different experiences we've gone through. Maybe we just wish our lives were different. Maybe we had better, made better choices along the way, had better luck, had an easier go of it. Maybe we're simply tired and just can't deal anymore. Whatever it may be, the reality is the pure light of Christmas and this season often stands 
in stark contrast to the dark messiness of our lives, doesn't it? But here's the thing about the story of the birth of God. Here's the thing. And if after this you check out on me for the next ten minutes, that's fine. Just hear this one sentence. It is exactly our messes, our pains and our hurts, our struggles and confusions, our sufferings, our broken relationships, and our hopeless situations. These are exactly the mangers that God chooses to be born. That's the good news of the Bible. We tend to think God is more like Samuel. We have to get the house ready. We have to decorate the tree. We have to put the cookies in the milk oven. We have to wrap the presents. We have to have things perfect before he comes. Or, like we talked about last week, we have to get off the naughty list and on to the nice list or God's not going to come. But that's not the story of God's birth in the Bible. That is popular Christmas song philosophy and not a little damaging theology. The Bible says that God comes to the mess. He comes to where we are decidedly not ready. He comes where we are decidedly not peaceful. Why? Because he loves us. Because he has favor on us, as Mary said. Because into darkness, he brings true light. Because to the hopeless, he brings hope. That's the biblical story. And I think this is why I love the story of the advent of John the Baptist so very much. See, on the surface, Zachariah and Elizabeth seem to have it all together, don't they? She is a descendant of Aaron. He is a priest who is very well connected. Between the two of them, they can get FaceTime with anybody. That's how impressive Zachariah and Elizabeth are. And on top of it, Zachariah just won the priestly lottery. So what happened back then is there were too many jobs. Sorry, there were not enough jobs for the too many priests that served in the temple. So what they did is they divided the priests into 24 different groups. He was part of the group of Abaha. And these groups would go to the temple two weeks every year, non-consecutively. And when there, they would draw lots for the various jobs that needed to be done. One of these jobs, to light the incense in the Holy of Holies, most scholars think if they ever won that job, they could only win it once. They could never again draw lots for that job. That's how impressive this job was. So he just won the priestly lottery. He's at the top of his profession, at the top of his game. Luke tells us they were also highly moral people, obeying the law with strict discipline, and all of this paints a very neat and wonderful picture of a family that has it all together in the perfect place for God to come. It's like a veritable courier and ice sprint, right? Right out of one of our popular but not so fast. Read a little closer, and maybe you heard it as Aaron was reading it to us today. We find their lives were simply quite as messy as ours. And the first big hint we get is Elizabeth's reaction to her pregnancy, he has taken away my disgrace. 
Elizabeth has lived in disgrace up until this moment that God comes and visits her. Her adult life has been nothing but disgrace because she didn't have kids. See, in today's world, when someone wants babies and they can't have them, it's a massive disappointment, and it hurts a lot. In her time and culture, and not only her, it was a catastrophe. And I'm not comparing suffering. Comparing suffering is never an adequate answer to the human condition. Don't, try not to do that. I'm not doing that. I'm just trying to paint the picture of Elizabeth's life and how messy it was and how it wasn't a courier and ice cream. You see, not having kids in their day and culture was a catastrophe on many levels. It was a financial catastrophe because kids in that day in culture were people's 401ks. They were people's assisted living. They were people's nursing homes. In fact, I, I'm bringing that culture back to my family. <laughs> I've told Isabel and Noah many times, you get a good job because you're about to have 401k. <laughs> People without kids then and there lived with the knowledge that when they could no longer work, there would be no one to take care of them. So it was financially a catastrophe. Also, their disgrace came because Jewish theology and sadly, some people have taken our Jewish roots in the Old Testament and twisted verses to add it to Christian theology, but has suggested that if you did not have kids, you must have done something wrong. God's not blessing you with kids. So religiously and socially and economically, they're not having kids. It's a catastrophe. She lived in that disgrace her whole life. And into that, God Zachariah, while enduring the same disgrace, he was part of the problem, as the outside world looking in would see. He also seemed to have fallen into a bit of hopelessness, maybe even a bit of lack of faith, even as a priest. We get a hint of this in his response to the angel's decree that he will have a baby. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. A priest, face to face with an angel, telling him something's going to happen. No, I, I don't I think Zachariah had lost his faith over the years of disgrace. I think he had stopped praying for a child. Into that unbelief, God. What a God. And on a larger scale, they lived with suffering simply because of the time and place they lived. They were Israelites living under occupation of a foreign empire. We, none of us, have an understanding of what it means to live with an occupying force in our country. Thank God we don't. But that's not fun. <coughs> to make it worse, their immediate ruler, the guy that Rome put in charge of them, King Herod, he was a madman. A madman, veritable madman. He killed indiscriminately. He killed his own family indiscriminately. He's responsible for what we in Christendom memorialize as the massacre of the innocents, the killing of baby boys in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. And how's this for being mad? Just before his death, he had a number of prominent Jewish citizens rounded up and held captive, and his guards were given the order that when he dies, he kills, they were to kill all those Jewish citizens. Why? Because he wanted to ensure that the population would go into mourning when he died. So, madman, their immediate rule. So I think it's clear that Zachariah and Elizabeth did not lead lives from a career high school. Their lives were messy. They were difficult. They were full of suffering, doubts, lack of faith. 
that is exactly where God chose to come and visit His faithful, bring the fulfillment of His promises, insert hope into their hopes. Good news. The Bible is, is good news. So, I think Zachariah's response Zachariah's response to his son's birth can help us understand what God is bringing into our lives. Because this is important. He has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. See, we need to be careful here when we talk about the whole time. Because expectations of the wrong kind can leave us as empty as we sometimes feel in January when we realize all the gifts of Christmas time. All the parties and celebration, the days of expectations, didn't change a thing. If we were sick before Christmas, we're still sick after Christmas. If our relationships were struggling before Christmas, we're still struggling after Christmas. And if our finances were bad before Christmas, they're probably worse because we've spent too much money on all. And our fears come back stronger than we were than they were before we pushed them aside to make room for Christmas. That's what wrong expectation does. Wrong expectation gives you that post-holiday blues. And sadly, some theologies, or maybe not even theologies, just the way we read scripture sometimes and we internally process it can give us wrong expectation. That leads to things like, if you're just good enough, God will take care of all your problems. Here's the thing. The hope God gives is not predicated on our current situations being changed. <coughs> Nothing changed for the thief on the cross. Nothing. Except one thing. Today, he was in paradise. The hope God gives us is not dependent on our suffering being ended here and now. The hope God brings is different than that. It's bigger than that. It is hope given in the midst of our hope. It is a hope based on the faithfulness of God himself. See, that faithfulness was exhibited when he came the first time as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. See, that was the fulfillment of a promise he made to us at the beginning of time. For God's promise to come again. We can hope in that because he was faithful the first time he promised. It's also the hope of knowing our sins are of knowing that whatever it is that we know keeps us in chains, that's been broken. That's forgiven. It's knowing that nothing, absolutely nothing, that we have ever done, that we are doing right now, or that we will do in the future, can separate us from the love of God. I want you to think about that. Think about the person in this world that you think, believe, or assume loves you more than anyone else. Think of that one person in this world that you assume, think, loves you more than anyone else. And now imagine that there is nothing you could do, ever, for that person to stop loving you. Wouldn't that be awesome? Because we all have our breaking points. Let's be as much as we wish we did. 
and as much as I wish, I wish, I didn't have a breaking point. We all have. But that's the good news. We all have someone that doesn't have a breaking point. God doesn't have a breaking point. That's the point of the cross. There's no breaking point. It's finished. He loves us forever. Nothing can separate us from that. Nothing. The worst possible thing that's happening to us can't stop God from loving us. The worst possible thing we could do can't stop God from loving us. Nothing. 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 That's hope. The hope God gives is the hope that our suffering now is somehow part of the suffering of God that saves the world. St. Paul said that. It's part of this deep pastoral mystery. I can't explain, but it's hopeful, isn't it? From when you bite something hard and you're old and your tooth chips and you got to get it all worked up from that silly, ugh, aggravating suffering to betrayal by someone else, to evil. Somehow it's all part of the great mystery that saves this world. Well, what, what hope God gives us to participate with Him? It's the hope that suffering now is not the final chapter of our stories. That all of our stories will end on the far side of suffering. Is not this the great mystery Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 5? <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another mystery, it's hard to explain, but what hope if we're poor in spirit? The kingdom of heaven is ours. It's ours. Jesus said that. I'm not saying that. Jesus did. What good news. It's the hope of knowing that he is making all things new, and in the end, love will be. That's why I've said this three weeks, sorry, three weeks in a row, but I just have to repeat it because I can't tell you how much it aggravated me to see that headline, God is not fixing this. Yes, he is fixing this. That's the point. He is making all things new. hope that we no longer need to fear. This is what St. John says. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever. <coughs> I have the keys to death and pain. Think of that person again that you want so badly to be the person that loves you no matter what. And now imagine if they had the key to death. You wouldn't have to be afraid of anything. Because if they love you that much, they take care of even death. God has those keys. Good news. The one who has the keys is the one who loves us. The one who brings hope into the messiness of our lives. The one who was born in the mangers of our suffering. Back in 2000, I think 2000, maybe 2001, a musician wrote an article for Christian Reader, which is now Christianity Today, but when he published it back in 2000, it was a Christian Reader. 
Christian musician, musician, Christian musician. And he wrote about an experience he had in that Starbucks. That's on the corner of 51st and Broadway in Manhattan. I found that on Google Maps. Rich, thanks for capturing that one. Rich was probably like, why do you want this picture? Look at this story. So he wrote this. This is his story about what happened that night. It's made the internet, so some of you probably read it, but I think it's worth hearing again, especially in this context of hope. It was chilly in Manhattan, but warm inside the Starbucks on 51st and Broadway. November in New York can be pretty darn cold, sending lots of folks inside for coffee. For a musician, it's the most lucrative Starbucks location in the world, and the tips can be huge. Apparently, we were striking all the right chords that night because our basket was almost overflowing. I was playing keyboard and singing backup for my friends who also added rhythm instruments. We mostly did pop songs with a few original tunes thrown in. During our rendition of the classic, If You Don't Know Me By Now, I noticed a lady sitting in one of the lounge chairs across from me. She was swaying to the beat and singing along. After the tune was over, she approached me and said, I apologize for singing along in that song. No, I replied, we love it when the audience joins in. Would you like to sing up front on the next selection? To my delight, she accepted my invitation. I said, what are you in the mood to sing? She said, well, do you know any hymns? This woman didn't know who she was dealing with. I cut my teeth on hymns. Name one, I said. Oh, I, I don't know. There are so many good ones. She said, you pick one. Okay, I replied. How about his eyes on the sparrow? My new friend was silent. Then she fixed her eyes on mine and said, yeah, let's do that one. She slowly put down her purse, straightened up, and faced the center of the shop. She began to sing, why should I be discouraged? Why should the shadows come? The audience of coffee drinkers was transfixed. Even the gurgling noises of the coffee machine ceased as the employees stopped what they were doing to listen. The song rose to its conclusion, I sing because I'm happy, I sing because I'm free, for his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. When the last note was sung, the applause crescendoed, rivaling a sold-out crowd at Carnegie Hall. Embarrassed, the woman tried to shout over the din, oh, everybody go back to your coffee, I just came in here to get something to drink, just like you. But the ovation continued. I embraced my new friend and I said to her, you, my dear, have made my whole year, that was beautiful. Well, it's funny that you picked that particular hymn, she said. Why is that, I asked. Well, and she hesitated again. That was my daughter's favorite song. And then she grabbed my hands and with tears in her eyes said she was 16 and she died of a brain tumor last week. I said the first thing that found its way through my stunned silence, are you okay? She squeezed my hand as her tears continued to fall. I'm going to be okay. I've just got to keep trusting God, singing Lord's songs. I'm going to be okay. She picked up her bag and left. Was it just a coincidence that we happened to be singing in that particular Starbucks that particular night? Coincidence that this wonderful lady just happened to walk into that particular shop. Coincidence that of all the hymns to choose from, I just happened to pick the very hymn that was the favorite of our daughter who had just passed away. It was a haunting reminder 
that if we keep trusting, we're going to be okay. Savior has been born. Amen. Whoa. 